на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут на зеленом ковре so hello and welcome back to the russian football news podcast we've got another world cup special today with the home tournament of course just around the to- the corner for us uh, russian football fans so delighted to welcome my two guests uh they my usual guest who, who seems to be appearing quite a lot actually had a bit of a break sabbatical loan spell away i'm not quite sure where to but he's back again that's uh, the website editor that's toka thelaid how are you sir <laughs> Thanks for the welcome, Tom. I'm glad to be back as usual. Good stuff. And uh, we also have, I don't know how I'd describe him actually. He's, uh, I'll call him a pessimist. We have a lot of those on those podcasts. Fellow sort of, I'm going to say poor club fan, Sunderland fan. That's uh, James Nichols, but of course a very big expert on Russian football who we are delighted to have once again on the podcast. How are you? Hey, Tom. Great to be back. Good stuff. So let's crack straight on with it. So last night, so we're recording this on uh, Friday. So on Thursday, we saw, uh, well, Russia have been in a training camp in Austria, which is kind of a thing in itself. People question that, but they seem to be happy with the facilities and everything. And I've heard reports were good in the preparations. But in terms of match preparations, things didn't go so well. They lost 1-0 against Austria and uh, in Innsbruck, and it did not look good. Toka, I'm going to come to you first, but to be honest... I caught the second half and a bit of the first half, and to be honest, I couldn't wait for it to end. It was dire. Yeah, and let's be honest, what are any of us really surprised by the result? I mean, I think Russia delivered what we could expect from them. It was it was pretty boring, uneventful, unexciting. And at the end of the day, I mean, it was it was deserved that Austria won. Of course, Russia did have some some chances. Smolov had a, had a big chance. I think it was in the second half. Which he just shot past the post, but overall, I think it was it was a poor performance from Russia, and it is worrying. I mean, I, th- I think they did play some good games at the end of last season. There was that uh, draw against Spain. There was a narrow defeat to 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 um, to Argentina, but but it's not looking good at the moment. I mean, I, I thought they would be, be they would be further ahead in their preparations for the World Cup, and I mean, it, it's only a friendly, and I know Chesnikov did experiment and all these things, but but I think it was a very worrying uh, performance against Austria. I mean, James, Toka there talks about the experimentation. I'm, I'm, I know you've got some sort of hot-headed opinions on Chesnikov, which I'm sure you'll get into, but we noticed the change. Yeah. We've been thinking three at the back pretty much guaranteed all the time, but he switched to a four last night. That was odd, I yeah. thought. That was, that was strange. Yeah, it's not exactly forward-thinking to spend two years preparing for the most important tournament of the whole nation's lives in football. And then after, within what, two weeks of the World Cup start and decide to completely rip every single blueprint up created in those two years, completely change it and change the formation and personnel. Now, the latter is, of course, forced. And I think that's probably why he's went to a back four is that obviously the, the ACL injuries to Jikier and Vasin are, are just destructive for Russia's defence to be quite honest and I'm not quite sure if Cherchesov believes he can trust his defenders in the back three the current ones that he's got but on the other hand why why set up a system for so long get the get them playing to a degree of relative positivity at times I mean the game against Spain Russia were excellent at times even with defensive mistakes as always but it just doesn't make any sense I mean I think as soon as we've seen the lineup with Vladimir Granyat and Sergei Ignashevich, the two central defenders, I think 
everybody probably feared Marco Arnautovic bearing down on them, and that's only Marco Arnautovic, never mind Luis Suarez or Mohamed Salah in the group stages of the actual World Cup. But it just doesn't make any sense. Why would Churchill do this? Ignashevich has played in a back three all season, barring apart from the very last few games when Suska had their own defensive injury crises. And for numerous reasons, he's 38. He's, he's got no legs. He's probably got less than that. It just protects Ignashevich more than anything. And Granite himself is a little bit mistake-ridden at times. And also plays in the back three in a very defensive system from Kervin Birdie of hit on the counter. And that protects Granyat the way that Birdie sits deep. It, 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 it defies a lot of the weaknesses that he has. And then they go to Russia and Churches have completely changes it. I just don't understand why you would do that. They looked poor in defence, mistake-ridden at times, toothless in attacks, more of us completely isolated. And they had the granddad team out with Jerkov, Samedov, Ignashevich and Akinfeyev. I mean, fair enough, Akinfeyev, but... The four of them have got a combined age of 137 and have got over 350 caps between them. Well, yes, experience is a good thing, but in this case, it was just too, it was just too much, too much old, too much age against quite a young and fit Austria team. And if they play like that in the World Cup, which I'm completely expecting, I'll completely expect Egypt and Uruguay to absolutely take them apart. Yeah, I mean, Toko, why do you sort of think of any explanation regarding his switch to four at the back because as James says these players tend to play in the three at the clubs and I, I want to get into the four stuff later but just focusing on the defence for now can you see any sort of positive reason for that change to the four no when I, when I first saw the starting lineup actually I was convinced it was uh, with three central defenders and and Fernandes and, and Shurkov as the as the wingbacks then I didn't understand really what Samedov was doing in the team uh, so, uh, sorry Tyker, I had I realized, exactly the same okay, thought yeah yeah, this is actually a, a five for one, and as James said, I mean, I was disappointed because the players. I don't think the players really fit the system, and I, I I don't see any logical explanations behind the move. I mean, maybe he wanted to to try something new, but I think I don't think this formation offers Russia any new tactical um, possibilities compared to playing with three at the back because they were still relatively de- defensive. I mean. Had he played a four four two with Smolov and and Juba up front, then I could I could see the idea because then he was actually trying something new and maybe that was maybe that would be an approach that would be good against Saudi Arabia where you maybe don't need three central defenders because let let's be honest, Russia will probably control the ball for most of that game and not be not need that much defense. But but this four five one no, I don't think it made any sense and. Well, let's just hope that uh, Chertyshev sees that as well and, and decides to go back to to what the players know at least because this is uh, this seems like a really bad idea. And this close to the World Cup, they have they, now they have one game left. It, it reminds me of Capello who suddenly started experimenting before the World Cup in 2014 as well. Um, and it went horribly. I mean, we all remember that. So, um, yeah. I, I would, we, we have talked about this for such a long time. I mean, Jesuitov doesn't really seem to know exactly how he wants to play, and this this uh, just confirms that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, James Token says there, and I thought exactly the same, doesn't look like, I think I put a tweet out last night there, with no ideas. I mean, we went up to the, I say we, but you know what I mean, we went up to the final third, and there was just, as soon as you got to the final third, there was no sort of 
no idea of how to get into the box or get the ball to Smolov or anything. And actually, I thought this complete contrast with Austria, who I thought did brilliantly, as soon as they won the ball on the edge of the box, they did brilliantly on the counter, switching of the play when it went to one side, bring to the other, and then bring Arnautovic in it. I thought they were brilliant on the counter. But Russia, just the complete opposite, where they just got the ball into that final third, and they were just like, well, we don't know what to do now. Kept going square. It's so frustrating. Yes, it looked like a team of strangers out there. But this is a team of strangers. A lot of them have been playing together since Churchill took over. I mean, it, it, I do agree with, with Toker as well. It, it, it's even what he's doing now even foreshadows Slutsky himself. And in the year of 2016, when he, he played beforehand with, with wingers, proper wingers, so Shatov and Samedov either side, and then suddenly changed it to have Oleg Shatov in the middle and then Smolov on the left wing. Why do this? Why does this happen at every single major tournament? It's it's just it it baffles me. And then last night, I, I completely agree. Russia just looked absolutely horrendous. I mean, they didn't get. I mean, Golovan I thought was one of the more impressive players. He didn't have the best of games, but he was nowhere near enough on the ball. Smolov was nowhere near enough on the ball. They were completely isolated, and I think that's purely because of the formation that he played and the personnel he had in that formation. If Yuri Zhirkov's playing, it's got to be at left-back. He's himself, Evan Semedov, are 32 and 33 and 34 now. They just simply don't have the legs and ability to play in the counter-attacking system. They, obviously, they were obviously away from home, worried about Austria's pace up top. So they sat deep and tried to counter. And it, but because they had Zhirkov and Semedov, it just looked like they were essentially playing a back six because those two are so defensive anyway. And they've got such little pace on the counter, it was just small of, nobody for 40 years, and then Golovan running around trying to track four people in the middle, completely on his own. And I, I don't want to get too much at the midfield, because I, I, I am quite excited about the midfield. I think Zobdin, Kazayev and Golovan are Russia's future, and are very exciting. But we'll possibly just need Zagoyev in there for more creativity. Cherry, it was nice to see Cherryshev in the second half come on and get some game time. He's been playing very well for Villarreal this season. And probably should have started. Samedov's the second most used player under Churchesov so far. We all know he's probably going to go. I personally wouldn't. I'm not a big fan. I think he's got a, he's a brilliant crosser of the ball. He's got a good set piece. But apart from that, he does absolutely nothing. He brings nothing to Russia's game in any way. But Churchesov loves him. He's experienced. He's solid defensively. He's exactly what he wants in a player. He's going to go at the World Cup. So why start him? Why doesn't he give the players on the fringes a, ch- a possibility of a chance to prove themselves? Tashayev is a wild card choice. I personally think that he should be going one of the first names in the in the play, and he's been absolutely brilliant the second half of the season for Dinamo Moscow. He's something completely different. Cher- uh, as mentioned, Cherryshev. These are these are wingers who could have started yesterday in that formation and would have thrived. We kept wondering like, when you talk about the team in, in the past. We expected these players not to be picked because of the formation, because of the narrow attack with the two, because of the three at the back with wing-backs. Where do these players fit? Churchill finally changes it to get the best out of these sort of fast wingers. And he doesn't even play them. He plays these 40-year-olds, and not even that 70-year-old players who are just past it. And I thank everything that Samedov and Zhirkov has done for the national team, but it's just well beyond their years, and I think there was a couple of we've got a couple of articles on the site where from over a year ago that it was auspicious signs that there was youth finally being blooded. There was the, the the golden age, so called, of the past. We're all getting too old and being ignored. But since then, it's it's, it's just backtracked. 
And the one key thing for me is that even though Austria haven't qualified for the World Cup, Russia's record since 2016 against teams who have qualified is that they've won one, drawn five, and lost seven. I mean, it's astonishing. I think David um, David Sanson, one of our writers, tweeted last night, if they weren't qualifying automatically, this team would be getting nowhere near qualification. I think that's a fair comment. And But at the same time, Toker, I, I, James mentioned Cherishev there, and I thought it was quite good to see him come on. But I also thought there was one point where he had the ball on, I can't remember what minute it was or anything, but he had the ball on the left-hand side in the box, and he pulled it back, and there's just no one in the box to finish it off. And that, and you see him through his arms, which I know isn't great body language from a player, but it just, to me, it just sort of showed the, the sort of standard that he now has to. This is going to sound really disrespectful, and I don't mean it like that, but this, the sort of standard drop, essentially, that he's having to cope with. Oh yeah, absolutely, and but I don't think it, it's not only that because it, this also comes back to the formation. Because if if we look at the starting lineup, I mean, apart from Smolov, which of these players are going to go into the box? I mean. Neither Golovin nor Kushayev or Subnin, they're not the kind of midfielders who take the run into the box um, and attack the crosses. I mean, they, they will sit deep, they'll wait outside the box for for the for the return balls. Samedov and Shirkov, I mean, they're both too old to run into the box. Um, so Smolov, is, he was bound to, to, to be alone in the box. And this is not the first time. It, it happens again and again when Russia played this formation. It happened under Capello when he played the... His 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, whatever we call it. It happened under Slutsky, and now it happens under Chechyshev. So it it's just so typical. Playing with one striker simply doesn't work when you don't have midfielders or some sort of inside wingers who will go and support the lone striker because I, because then Smolov will be alone and it will be an easy easy task for the defenders to, to mark him and avoid any danger. And I, I think it's also very important that, that we notice that this Austria team, it, it, it wasn't the best Austria team they could send. I mean, David Alaba was on the bench, for example. They have a couple of injuries. I looked at the squad the other day, and I think they were missing three or four players from the German Bundesliga players who would normally be around the starting lineup. Uh, Alaba on the bench as well. They've been missing Mark, Marco Janko, the experienced striker. So they had a lot of a lot of regular starters who wasn't even close to the team. So had it been an Austria team in the strongest lineup at home, well then, okay, a defeat is acceptable. But but this is like a, an Austrian B team almost. And that really should be kind of side rush. It should be able to at least get a draw against. James, can I just come to you on this? Because we've talked about Smolov and how he was lonely in the box. But you, I, th- I can't remember. I think it was you earlier. I might have been Toker actually. Where it, Smolov missed a big chance in the second half. And half of me thinks... If he scores that chance, well, there's two things. A, Russia could perhaps get a bit of confidence and win the games, and perhaps even if it ended in a draw 1-1, for example, do we then count that as pretty good preparation, really? It's it's sort of tinted by the loss in a way, or, or do you think that's just nonsense? <laughs> uh, I think at this stage, it's not exactly the result that matters. Uh, it, we could go and beat Brazil 1-0, with a fluky goal and be awful all game in which Brazil miss 14 shots which are completely open goals. It's not always the result, it's the way they played they played horrendously. It was just, there was, there was very, very few positives and it's so close to the biggest tournament in the history of Russian football. And they've completely backtracked from what's, what all the good work that Churchill has done. 
And I think the problem is that it's, it is all too easy to blame like injuries, tactics, Churchesov, players, and all four of them are contributors. But it's just typically so short-sighted of Russian football to just to be, oh, Churchesov isn't playing this one person instead of this one person. It's, so it's all his fault. I like what Toga said earlier, where it, it's, it's 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, and now 2018. It's just every single major tournament, this is a problem. And that's because it is a far bigger problem. Football in Russia is pretty much broken, like from the systemic level. Like the new physical deals are needed, changing ownership structures are needed. There's an overhaul of the proposed the, the academy system that's needed. Structural changes to the calendar and the league system were necessary a decade ago, never mind now. And then above all else, the RFU needs to address that the fact that they can't just sweep under these issues under the carpet anymore just for another caretaker to nerf them and then once again ignore them. We've seen with the naturalisation issue, they've naturalised Mario Fernandez, Guillaume and Roman Neustadter. All three are good players, but if Russia's football system worked, they don't need to naturalise these players. There shouldn't be the conversation of whether Ari, the Brazilian-born uh, striker for Lokomotiv Moscow, should be even playing for Russia because they shouldn't be needing to have that conversation. They should have enough people there in position ready for this. They've, know, they've known about this World Cup. They could have made changes and reforms a decade ago, but they've done nothing. It's a, they've got a feeling that everything's perfect and nothing is wrong. And although I do think Church itself has made mistakes, this constant failure, a constant uh, problem, is because of football in, this, in the state, in the systems, is absolutely broken. Although I'd love to get into that topic about the football in general, I sort of feel like it's one that's gone for about three hours. So I want to go stick with the sort of on field and as we sort of round <laughs> off the Austria topic, if you like. Tokar, I'll come to you first. Two, two questions. What would you change going going to the next week's friendly against Turkey, which is the last one before the tournament, as we mentioned? What would you change? And also, what do you think? Do you think Cherchesov will change back to a three at the back and change a few players? I think Cherchesov has learned his lesson now that, okay, this formation does really work. So they, yeah, I think they'll go back to the usual uh, 5 4 1. I really hope. Chachachov dares to play Smolov and Chuba at the same time because that would, I think that would solve a lot of problems. That would, First of all, we would have Chuba as a constant threat in the penalty area, but with him next um, with him next to Smolov, Smolov would also be allowed to roam a bit more freely, seek the open areas, and I think it would make him a lot more dangerous. Also, I think those two, in my opinion, they're by far the best Russian strikers, and and I think they could, could form a really dangerous partnership. It's the only problem is that they haven't played together yet. I mean, they, the Juba has been almost out of the national team since 2016. He hasn't really played that much. I mean, he sat on the bench for the entire autumn until he, he went to Arsenal Tula. But but I'd like to see those two up front together. Maybe in, you could play a 5-3-2 or something. You would have this. You would still have the three central midfielders, um, which I agree with James. I think central midfielders probably... Russia's biggest strength uh, at the moment, um, and I, I think that that system could work. I mean, you would have two good wing backs in Fernandez and Shirkov or Kudrasov or whoever you place on the left, and you would have a strong presence in the penalty area. And I think it would be a lot more dangerous than what we see right now. And James, the same question to you: What would you do, and what do you think Churchill is going to do? Yeah, well, I think if if journalists. And insiders in the Russian camp are to be believed is that 
the Ch- uh, Chalov, Yerikin, Zhenayev, uh, Cheshayev are all going to be dropped from the squad. And uh, Churchesov will pers- persevere with the back four system in a 4-3-3 for the duration of the camp and the World Cup. No, that is the word from journalists within the camp. Personally, I hope that's not the case. I would t- t- immediately change it back to a back three because they've been working on it for two years now. And what's the absolute point of all that work just going to nothing? Uh, I think you've got to get your best players in the best positions. The three-man defence protects the weaknesses of many defenders. Like Kutupov's pace and Ignashevich's age were both protected by the three. Uh, I think Fyodor Kudryash a good left back, but he's at, when he, he's very best, he's on the left of the three in centre back. He's absolutely excellent there. Uh, and we need to get, like Toga says, I think Smolov and Zuba, it's about time that we'll put them up top together. And if not, I really want to see Alexei Miranchuk start more games for the Russian national team. He's probably been the most exciting young Russian talent in the league this season, apart from maybe Golovan. He's electric, utterly electric. His brother Anton's been playing out of his skin this season, is finally coming out of Alexei's shadow. But they just can't get minutes. And then I think Alexei Moranchuk himself particularly would form a brilliant combination of top of Smolov. They've both got that intelligence. They're just like an inch or two ahead of the majority of the other players in the team. As soon as Moranchuk comes up, comes on, Smolov comes off. Why? I, I just don't understand it. And Although I do think that Zobnin, Kazaev and Golovan are the future of the Russia's midfield. And all three talented players, they're all doing the same job. They all want to be the water carrier. They all want to be box to box. They all want to play exactly the same role. There isn't any differentiation in, in Russia's midfield. Degoyev has to come in for the creativity. He's got to. It's just, there's just absolutely no link in between attack and midfield without him. As good as Golovan is, as good as all three of them are. And I think the biggest problem Russia faces is that there isn't a defensive midfielder in the squad who's good enough. Neither Yuli Kaczynski or Alexander Yerakina are of really top-class level. And then Igor Denisov is obviously the the rift with Chechesov is well documented, but he's he should be the man in there, but he's not. But for me, it's got to be trying to cover that lack of a defensive midfielder, cover the problems in the squad by getting players in the best positions. That's got to be if if three at the back, and then two up top, whether that be whether that is Moranchuk or Zuba with Smolov. Either way, I'm happy. So let's move on to the actual tournament now. Just going to read off the group fixtures and we'll we'll go through each one, I think, as, as we see it. So the first one, of course, the, the opening match of the tournament, that's uh, Luzhniki Stadium, which, of course, will also host the final. Uh, that's in Moscow. That's Russia against Saudi Arabia. Um, then we have, they will then travel up north to St. Petersburg, Krestovsky Stadium, where they will face uh, Egypt, Mo Salah, who of course was mentioned earlier, who we think is now going to make the tournament despite that shoulder injury in the Champions League final. And then the last game, uh, 25th of June at the Cosmos Arena in Samara, that's against Uruguay. So, Toker, I think we might, I think I've mentioned this before on a podcast, or at least somebody has. Um, that first match against Saudi Arabia. For me, actually, it could go one or two ways because it's it's really a must-win. So on the one hand, you think Russia are a better team than Saudi Arabia, should be able to beat them, but you also think pressure, opening night, Luzhniki Stadium, packed house, Saudi Arabia will probably set up well defensively. And we've seen against Austria last night that Russia struggled to break teams down. Yeah, I'm not really thinking any of those things, actually. I don't think the pressure or Luzhniki or those things will have an effect. The thing I'm afraid of is... is the fact that this is the Russian national team. And 
I wouldn't be surprised to see Saudi Arabia take a point. I, I think Russia will win. I, just like when they met uh, New Zealand at the Confederations Cup, I think Russia will take a narrow win. I don't think it will be convincing. I don't think it will be entertaining. But I think Russia will probably take the three points. Um, but then the, the Egypt game, if, if I'm allowed to move on, I think that's really the key game. And, and I think I'm, a, I'm a really afraid Russia will struggle a lot in that one. And we saw how the struggle against Andalusovic uh, of Austria, then against Mosala. I mean that that's that's simply a level of a player that these Russian guys they're not used to playing against like him, uh, guys like him. Ignashevis has tried it before, but if he plays with Granada in the central defense, if he plays with um, whoever, anybody but uh, Ignashevis, basically, I mean they're not used to meeting players of this level, and I, I think he will cause a lot of problems for Russia and. That is really the size of game. And as I've said before, I don't think Russia will advance from the group. So, James, let's get your take on, on that first game particularly. What are your thoughts on the Saudi Arabia match? And, of course, as Toka did, you can you can move on to Egypt if you fancy it as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree. I think that Russia are going to get the points. It's probably one of the most important games that these players will ever play, and the pressure will be on. But the pressure was on the Confed Cup. The these players usually do perform quite well when the pressure's on like that. It's Saudi Arabia. I'm not going to lie, I don't have much of an inkling how Saudi Arabia play, but I just don't see Saudi Arabia having the quality to to worry Russia. Just like I don't see Russia having the quality to worry Egypt or Uruguay. To be absolutely fair, but I think Russia will get through Saudi Arabia. They'll, the players they've got right now have got a good mentality. That's the one thing we can say about them, especially the midfield three, the tenacious, very strong mentalities. Uh, and I have to agree with Toker again. I, I'm, I'm absolutely petrified of the thought of Mohamed Salah, Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez facing this Russia defence. I think if Victor Vassin and George Jigia are fit and well, then they've got a settled back five. The, what we all know is Churchill's pretty much favoured back five of Mario Fernandez, Jigia, Vassin, Kuzliashov and then Probably Zhirkov. If that's fully fit and active, I think they would stand with a better choice, a better chance, sorry, against these genuinely world-class players. And even then, it's going to be close. I, I just don't... Uh, if Mo Salah plays and is fit against Russia, I could see Egypt walking all over them, just utterly walking all over them. They'll sit back, they'll sit, sit deep, as Egypt always do. Soak up the pressure with Hagazi at centre-back, who's an absolute beast, and just hit them on the counter-attack, hit Russia on the counter. And Russia can't play against that. It's been proven time and time again. They can't face that sort of football. And then Uruguay, the, the sheer ability of Cavani and Suarez is going to shine through. But it all, to me, Russia's advancement of the last 16 and get out of the group stage just completely relies on the fact as if Mo Salah's fit or not. Because unfortunately, the defence is good enough yeah so let's let's stick on the Mo Salah topic Toka because I'm not quite sure of the official diagnosis of the injury but we know he's battling to be fit he says he thinks he'll be fit but it's just a question of whether he'll be fully fit so let's the thing is even a half fit Mo Salah is going to probably rip Russian defence apart but let's say Salah is not fully fit that obviously do you have much boosted hopes from that for Russia or do you think even like I, I do, to be honest, the half-fit Salah is, well, Russia are done for, essentially. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm especially 
concerned about this game because Mo Salah is not the only one Egypt has. I mean, I think it's it's important to recognize that this Egypt team actually has other good players as well. For example, they have um, a young winger called Trezeguet. I don't, I don't think that's his real name, but apparently he's been tearing things up in, in Turkey this season. I looked at a few videos of him a while back and it looks really exciting. So if Russia focus too much on Salah, they have other players who can who can tear the team apart. And that, that that's, worry, that's worrying simply. And from what I understand, Egypt is also a very defensively skilled team. They have Hector Cooper as a national team coach. Of course, we all know him. He, he has an incredible track record. He knows how to set a team up. He knows how to get them to perform and be solid defensively. And this Russia... As, as awful as Russia are defensively, they're even worse offensively. And, and I think they will, it'll be really difficult for them to break down a defensively good team like Egypt. So this, um, this can be a tight game, I, I think. And yeah, as you said, even a half-fit Salah can, can make the difference here because he has the abilities that none of these Russian players has. He can open up a game, he can create chances out of nothing. And unfortunately, Russia simply doesn't have those players. And those players Russia do have, that does have some creativity and and some ideas like for example Denis Cherishev they're not really favored by Cherishev so it doesn't matter that much unfortunately so let's move on to that final game then which is in Samara which we talk about a lot on this podcast and generally on the website Samara being the hotbed of Russian football so they've done really well to get that game ahead of somewhere for example just off the top of it somewhere like Sochi which they sort of really try and push as a as a host venue for general sporting events but for Samara to get that game is really really fantastic um but Uruguay, James, it's, it could rest on this match, really. And it's, I mean, the thing is, I really try hard to be a bit more optimistic at times, but it's, <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is difficult. And I think it's probably as difficult as the third game will be for Russia, for Russia's defence. Uh, I think we've got, we've got an article on the site, which is an analysis of Russia's group that was published in early December. We'll share it again on the Twitter, so readers know exactly where to go and find it. And in that, I think I called Samara Russia's like Northeast England. It's it's kind of like an awful cliche, but it's like a hotbed of football. There's nothing else there, so they all focus so much on the football team. And Samara, for years, the Metalux Stadium was one of the biggest attendances in the whole of the Premier League. And if, if, just if, the results are right on the night before the third game... And there's, a, there's that, that tension, that pressure. The Cosmos Arena is just in a brilliant atmosphere. Russia could could get something from Uruguay. And I think the arguably more likely to get something from Uruguay than with the Egyptless Mohamed Salah, because I think Salah's pace is just so destructive. Whereas Egypt have got some brilliant players up top, as I've as mentioned before. I mean, Cavani scored 10 goals in qualifying for, for, for Uruguay alone. And I think... But they don't quite have that pace that'll worry behind Ignashevich, behind Granat, who are both notoriously slow. On the other hand, Uruguay do have some really interesting young talent coming through. Uh, Federico Valverde and Nahita Hernandez are both like frequent starters for Tavares, and it's kind of like they're leading like Uruguay's reinvigoration because like, their golden age is, is coming to an end now. Gadin. Uh, Suarez, Forlan, of course, are all like retired or on the wrong age of thirty, wrong end of thirty, and I just uh, it's 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 too hard to call. But I think I just can't honestly pack Russia in this one. I think my pessimism is going to come out here, and I think 
Uruguay going to get something from the game? Uh, get everything from the game? I think Uruguay going to get the three points. I mean, they're a changed team in terms of some of the players, like Sebastian Cuartes, his time at Sunderland. He, he probably he couldn't defend to save his life at Sunderland. But moving to Sport and Lisbon has completely changed his career. He's, he's performed brilliantly at one of the highest levels there. So, I, I, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a possibly an embarrassing World Cup for the hosts unless there's some massive change and we see some massive change on the pitch in this game against Turkey on Tuesday. Just, um, just you mentioned actually Uruguay's youth system and I know this isn't Uruguayan football podcast obviously, but I thought I'd mention it. I think Uruguay have a, as far as I'm aware, have a really good youth system where they, because they're such a small nation, just a couple of million people, they they really focus on those um, those youth tournaments and then being able to export that talent to Europe. And Russia could do with the same sort of system, really. But that's a discussion for another time, as we said previously. Toka, I've just thought of something that could liven Russian spirits up. And you will probably shoot me straight back and tell me I'm talking nonsense, which is fair enough. But it could be Uruguay may have already qualified at this point. That would, That's my slight optimistic angle on this. Yeah, I was I was thinking exactly the same thing. If Uruguay win the first two games, then perhaps they will save a player or two or play on 90% or something like that for the last game against Russia. Of course, that would be a huge advantage. Um, it still requires Russia to beat either Egypt or Saudi Arabia, get a good starting point. But but yeah, I mean, it's, it's the perfect time to meet Uruguay because they might not have as much to play for Um as they would if they played in the first or the second leg. So, so that, that's a very valid point, and, and I agree with you completely. The only thing I would say, Toe, because I've just sort of beat my own argument here, is that they will be wanting to top the group. So let's say, uh, so Uruguay yeah. beat then, and then, so Egypt, let's say it's Egypt, because Egypt's the most likely to battle Russia for the second spot, aren't they? So let's say, for example, say Egypt, Egypt beat Russia in the second game, even though Uruguay could rest players, and they'd be sitting on six points, so could Egypt. Be, be going for six points against Saudi Arabia. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's always a question about priorities, um, and it's it's very difficult to try and predict exactly how how things will pan out. But if Russia and I mean, there's so many scenarios. But and I, I, but I think this is a, a legit argument. I think you can make this argument that Uruguay might already have won the group, or they can settle for a draw or something like that. So yeah, I mean, we can only hope that. Uh, that, that Russia will meet a less motivated Uruguay team in the last game. So just all that Russia, all that Russia win the first two games and can rest players against Uruguay. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, we we do know that that's not going to happen, but you never you never know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, let's not get too optimistic here. Yeah, let's let's calm down a bit. But um, I can't remember was going to say. Now you completely throw me with that. I was not expecting that sort of comment to come out, and it's completely thrown me. <laughs> I'm annoyed now. Anyway, um, but just just a quick word before we move on to our final topic, which is a good bit of fun actually. We'll have some fun with that one. Um, we're both thinking. Well, we're all three because I, I know what I'm thinking. That Russia will be the the second team after South Africa, of course, in 2010 to fail to make it from the group stage. James, yes. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, well, it's obviously the spanner in the works is more Salah. As we've seen with Liverpool in the Champions League, Salah's got that game-changing ability, and that's a double-edged sword. When he's in your team, he's such a such a threat on the counter. 
you're always terrified of him. He's you, you, you're fullback, you're def- as a defender, you're looking over your shoulder, thinking, where's Salah? Where is he? Why is he not here? Why is he not there? As soon as he's off the pitch, though, it's a completely different matter. It frees up the other team, as we've seen with with, with Liverpool Real. I mean, of course, this is Real Madrid, not Russia, so I'll not get too carried away here. But it, it you, you don't have that monkey off your back. Any, you've got that monkey off your back now. And then conversely, Liverpool players, they all, they're all deflated. And Salah is exactly that. He is the talisman for Egypt as well. It, there's no doubt. I mean, Egypt do have some other good players playing at probably higher levels and from some of Russia's best players, actually. But it all depends on whether or not Salah is fit and firing. And I know that's sitting on the fence a little bit. But if if he plays and if he's if he plays, he's going to be he's going to score and he's probably going to beat Russia. It doesn't matter if he's got one arm or, or not. It's just his pace and behind Igor is absolutely frightening, terrifying. But I do expect Russia to go out, unfortunately, in the group stages. I don't think there's any way of plastering over the cracks. It's, there's numerous reasons why, as we've all explained throughout, but it's not it's not optimistic for myself, unfortunately, tonight. But um, the only thing I would say is we saw in the... I'm not comparing Sergei Ignashevich with Sergio Ramos, by the way, although it sounds like I am, and I sort of am, is that we can get Sergei Ignashevich to do a little Sergio Ramos on him in the first few minutes, I'm sure. But, um, Toka, I mean, you're thinking the same regarding this um, group exit, I assume. I think even if uh, Sergei Ignashevich tried to to make a Sergio Ramos on, on Salah, I don't even think he would catch him. So I, I think <laughs> he drop that idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I expect Russia to, to drop out after the group stage. I've said this before. Then after the, after the group stage, we'll have another uh, podcast where we discuss why is Russia failing. We'll mention how the youth system needs to be completely changed. We'll talk about how the Russian football union lacks ambitions and visions. And then in two years after the Euro, we'll have the same discussion because I don't think anything will, will change, unfortunately. Yeah, you're, um, I, I was going to say you're giving away spoilers, but you're really not because it's so predictable. But, um, but let's move on to the final topic now, just a, just a quick one to finish with, and that is Andrei Arshavin, who celebrated his 37th birthday a couple of days ago. Russian football legend, I think it's fair to say, and quite a character off the pitch. Um, just a few stats sort of to run you off. 75 appearances for the Russian national team, uh, 17 goals, and then, of course, he was part of that famous uh, Zenit side that won the Euro... Uh, UEFA Cup back in those days, 2008, was of course part of the national team at the, the Euros that summer as well that reached the semi-final. Um, Toka, I know I know you're a big fan of Arshavin, so I'm going to I'm going to come to you first and just just a few words on him, really. Yeah, Arshavin, he's he's one of my all-time favorite players. I mean, that 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 Euro 2018 was was simply incredible. I mean, the the way he entertained and the way him he played, the way Russia played. It was fantastic, and the same um, for Senate that season when they won the UEFA Cup. When he moved to Arsenal, he had some amazing, some some amazing performances as well. And I think he had this really fantastic mix of um, of, of pure talent and just a slight hint of arrogance. I mean, it, it made him so entertaining. And and the fact that he wasn't perfect as well is is something I, I really like about him. I mean. It would have been awesome for Russia if he was a machine like Ronaldo and still scoring tons of goals, but but the way but the way you you saw that this was this was a flawed person as well made him even more appealing to me. Yeah, Toki, you've completely stolen my thunder because I was going to mention his sort of flawed character and I was going to ask James about that really and that sort of that flawed character <laughs> that Toka talks about there. Like, you, 
Toka's basically stolen everything. You can't compare him to someone like Ronaldo, who is just a machine so professional. Arshavin has that sort of... I don't know how to... Uh, you can think of a better like word for it, Rory. Like a flawed genius. Yeah, like a maverick sort of thing, really. Yeah, I mean, it's... Speaking to Arsenal fans, it's kind of complicated because his legacy itself at Arsenal is complicated. He's got 70, 72, 73, whatever it is, goals and assists in over 140 games for Arsenal. On the face of it, that's absolutely brilliant and he should be a club legend. But it's... He was, he was kind of like an enigmatic man himself. He's he's got a, a fashion degree. He's, he's he's a fashion designer, which is not normal in England English football for Arsenal fans thinking about him. But there was always problems that he, he was just a genius that couldn't quite exploit his talent. That he was quite mentally frail and was just simply distracted. But at the same time, he was utterly brilliant in those four goals on his was it debut against Liverpool. It was just I'm not sure it was debut, but there were incredible. definitely it was four goals at Anfield. I remember that. Yeah, it was just absolutely brilliant, and that's kind of his legacy in England. Of course, in Russia, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as an English fan of Russian football, is I just think Arshavin's absolutely brilliant, and has brought some of the best memories of the Russian national team in Zenit to myself, especially Euro 2008. As Toka mentioned, that game against Holland, he was unbelievable alongside Pavlyuchenko up top. But he was the one thing about Arshavin that's interesting is that he's he's kind of like a dichotomy. And Oshavan himself has said in interviews that he needed more time in England. He needed more time to reach the physicality of the game. The game in Russia is less physical than in England Premier League, especially at the time. But he kind of the Russian mentality is actually very similar to the English mentality. And there's like a dichotomy there between like brains and brute power that Oshavan could just never quite meet. Like his football himself was just not quite right in that terms, but he was utterly brilliant nevertheless. Just Nothing we could do with him in the national team right now, even though he's 37, he's still banging them in for Kairat. So I think he's give him a call up and get him in that position behind Smolov. <laughs> just, <laughs> we'll see about that. But just before I come to Toker about another question, I wonder, just you mentioned it there briefly, I would sort of expand on that point about it. Do you think Arshavin would perform better? Now, if you move to England now, given the sort of the style that we see, now when he's thirty-seven. No, no, but if he, yeah. so that you know what I'm trying to say. If he'd moved as he did after um, the Euros, <laughs> to, oh. do you see what? I, yeah, not not thirty-seven, but the Arshavin who was in good form, he moved to Arsenal at the time. Who, we as we said, he had those sort of fits and spurts of really good play. But would he be a better player? If you move, you you know what I'm trying to say. If if yeah, if the, yeah uh, come on, might, might oh, no. slightly better player. I think at the end of the day, his mentality would still have made him unsuccessful because I don't think it was the English way of playing. I think it was most of it came down to Shabin really being sort of a luxury player. There were a lot of stories about him being in bad shape. There were some stories of him not really willing to fight for his 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 spot in the team. So I don't think it would have made a big change. I mean, of course, if he had come to a, a team like City, they, they do play a little more technical football right now, but but I think yeah, eventually definitely. he would still have, have failed simply because of his mentality. And that mentality, this will come to both of you, is does it is that sort of actually a representation of that? Because we talk a lot about that 2008 team and how those players never really evolved and then it's actually been a bit of a 
a rod for the the modern the now the now team really that they're not willing to move abroad because those players failed is he the representation of that team that sort of was so close to getting there and actually doing something for Russian football that could really have grown the game in Europe and then just never he's really the the picture of that isn't he yeah i think that's yes and no because he is the example to all Russian footballers of the last decade. He is the best. He went over there and even he didn't make it. But in England, there's a lot of times by people say that he's lazy, he's a mercenary, he doesn't want to pull his weight. Like all these stereotypes evolved. And then that evolved about Dinya Belyletinov, that evolved about Pavel Pogredniak, that evolved about Roman Pavlyuchenko. And it wasn't always the case with Arshavin. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't a mercenary. He's just stubborn. He's just arguably one of the most stubborn players to ever play football. He was almost frustrated. like He kind of felt above the game in England because he was so frustrated by the physicality of it. That's how he plays. And that you could see in his body language how, he, how it was. And he's, he's actually mentioned this since as well. He's actually very strong mentally. He just didn't have the right mentality for this Arsenal tippy-tappy football getting banged about by six-foot-12 centre-backs. <laughs> That's not Arshavin's game. I think I agree with what talk, talk a sentiment before that stick Arshavin in this Man City team now and he'd be an absolute star. Just imagine him playing in, in behind like in that sort of De Bruyne, David Silva role where he's got freedom of movement, being surrounded by players who are just brilliant and the system that is extremely well suited to his style of football. It's the pace, the counter-attacking, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And then I think Oshavin's just like the icing of a cake. He's like the cherry on top. He's that luxury player. He's that player where either he is the system, he everything's around him, or there's no point in him being there. And at Arsenal, he was just kind of one of many. And that's why he probably didn't fit. At Zenit, he was FC Zenit and Oshavin. That's exactly what it was. It was all about him. And I think he thrived in that limelight. And that's because of his like, slightly arrogant, sort of narcissistic persona. Very stubborn. It wasn't that he was weak or, or the mercenary or, or just didn't care. It was the opposite. It's probably because he cared too much because he was so stubborn about caring in a certain way. And he's just he's just absolutely brilliant character. I just wish he was 10 years younger to help the team out now. Yeah, I mean, James mentions it there, Token. I, I want to sort of round this off soon, but... The fact he sort of he was much better at being. This is going to sound disrespectful, and I've I've made a couple of dis, well supposedly disrespectful statements throughout the podcast, so I do apologise. But he's better at being the big fish in the small pond, isn't he? Yeah, maybe. I mean, after for example, it's that's probably true because after Arsenal, he was still a big name. He had proven himself in the Premier League. At the end of the day, he had shown that he had the level, but. Instead, he chose to, to return to Senate way too early, in my opinion. He still had the lot to offer on, at the higher stage. So, so yeah, you can, you can say that. That's a, that's a fair statement calling him. He, he, like, he thrives when, when he's the star, and he was probably a bit homesick, and that's, that's a shame because it, he did set a bad example for many other Russian players when he chose the Russian Premier League or were trying to go to Germany or Spain or just a smaller English club. Just to finish on the Arshavin topic, by the way, I've, I've, I'm going to throw this up to you. and I'll go first, just give you a, a um, couple of minutes to think about it, if you like. Just your favourite sort of Arshavin moments and stories. And a couple for me. 
Uh, when I first lived in St. Petersburg, so that was, <coughs> excuse me, it's about uh, 2011, I think that was. And I remember outside the flat, there was a big, um, you know, big billboard over the over the road, the dual carriageway, and it was a and it was Andrei Arshavin advertising washing machines, which I think is fantastic. Having a star flat advertising washing machines, brilliant. And the other thing was um, at Birmingham. I remember um, Ars- we played Arsenal, and Arshavin was playing. And a friend of mine said to me, he said, oh, what's, what's Russian for hello? And I told him, he said, like, And he was like, because he wanted to shout at Arshav, and he's like, I'm not saying that. <laughs> so that, was quite, that was quite good. But uh, James, I'll come to you first with your favourite Arshav in moments. Um, I don't know if it's favourite, but my favourite is obviously uh, 3-1 in the game against Netherlands, Euro 2008 to come against what many people had considered the best team of the whole competition at that point. The Dutch were unbelievably good in the group stages and then through the quarterfinals, sorry, but then they came up against the Russia team and just absolutely torn them apart. Alshavin was brilliant. And there's also an interesting, I remember an interesting story that I read in, about Alshavin that he, he survived like being hit by a car as a child, I think, if I remember rightly. Uh, I'm sure it was he survived like being hit by a car as a child like his, his parents divorced very soon after at a young age and they were like his, his mom was seriously ill as a youngster as well and they were very poor his father and died like, when he was 40 apparently when the father was 40 obviously yeah it says hit by uh, hit by a car as a child his parents divorced when he was 12 yeah yeah like the, the, all his story about his, his career that he's went through he's just brilliant role model and it deserves all the praise that you can get, to be honest. And Toka, just to round off the pod as a whole, your uh, your Arshavin moments and stories. Well, it, it simply has to be his uh, his old website. That was that was just fantastic. <laughs> it, it unfortunately is not online anymore, but but he has this. I mean, this this was before social media age, so this was when you had a website if you wanted to share stuff with your fans. And Arshavin had the best website in the world. He he would block. He would upload. Uh, pictures he would answer questions from from the, <laughs> the readers and 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 his he has absolutely no filter so his 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 question his answers were insane i mean it it is there's an article on the website and, and i beg you to go read it because it, it's just incredible what he wrote on that website um it's it, it's absolutely insane i mean he talks about bears and world peace and windows and he doesn't want to meet his fans and he <laughs> bashes women's football saying that women shouldn't play football and uh-huh. there's, there's so many crazy statements and pictures on that website and it's <laughs> it's just incredible it's in both russian and and um and uh and english and we have all the english stuff on, on russian football news we'll, we'll share the article after the podcast here and and then i remember an interview the, the other story uh, uh Ashavin, he was asked who his friends were in the Arsenal squad, and he said Nicholas Bentner was one of them. And I, I, I can't, ever since I read that interview, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about what Ashavin and Bentner were doing together. Like, that, that's that's the best couple in the world of football, I think. I mean, I would love to be flying the wall when they were hanging out or going to parties or whatever they were doing. I mean, that's God. that's just what legends are made of. To be fair, that's probably why they got on so well, just that sort of party lifestyle if it's any consolation Nicholas Bentner and Lee Catamull once went around Newcastle City Centre uh, roundhouse kicking car wing mirrors off 
So if that's what he got up with Catamore, I wonder what he would have got up with Arsh Haven. So. <laughs> God. I don't know. He was at Birmingham as well, Benton. I don't have any funny Benton at Birmingham stories. That's a shame. But um, anyway, as Tokus says, we will retweet. Because I remember that um, that piece we did on Arsh Haven's website coming out. And, <laughs> brilliant. We will retweet that. And actually, uh, there, was a, there was another article. I think, James, you mentioned the one that we had back in December about Russia's group at the World Cup that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, I'll give that a retweet as well so the readers can have a little look around. It's just a, basically an analysis of the group stage uh, of each opponent and like a little bit of information where the games are for everyone. So if you go into the World Cup or if you're just interested in finding more about who Russia will be facing, that's up on their site as well. Lovely stuff. And just for the listeners, um, obviously World Cup just around the corner now, a couple of weeks away. So if you go on the website, if you're new to Russia and Russian football and, of course, Russia in general, we've got guys to each of the host cities on the website, which you can read through. So if you're planning to go to the tournament, you've got tickets for some of the cities, then do read our city guides, which have been expertly put together. And um, just before we sort of say goodbye to our guests, I'm just going to mention something. Actually, I'll do it to both of you. Um, Toker, I'll come with you first. What's what's upcoming on the website and what have you liked particularly in, that's been posted recently? Well, I, first of all, I have to highlight all the city guides. We have World Cup guides for all 12 cities, uh, all 11 cities of the World Cup. Um, I, I mentioned this the last time as well, but, but we just added the last one. So now you can get everything you need to know basically about all the host cities and simply prepare for a trip to the World Cup. Also, I think if you just have the slightest interest in Russian football, Go check out the results of the RFN Awards. Basically, we have found all the best players, all the best performances of the um, of the previous seasons of the Russian Premier League, and uh, yeah, awarded those players who stood out from the rest. We have made best player of the season, best young player, best uh, Russian player, best uh, coach, team of the season, and much more. So definitely go check that out. And James, what what piece would you like to highlight? Yeah, well, we've got a good piece as uh, an interview with Ilya Sokolov, and it's with uh, Elena Sokolov, and it's actually a pair of women who are aiming to teach World Cup tourists Russian. And it's a it's a course online, and it's how to talk to a bear, learn Russian effectively. And if you can, if you are going to the World Cup, go uh, go online, uh, follow the link at the bottom of the article, and get the code RFN Bear, and you can get sixty six percent off for the course actually through through this link on the site and it's it's a really good course just about and like a, being able to confidently navigate your way around Russia during the World Cup, how to interact in restaurants, uh, how, to, how to find your way around the metro, exactly what to do in a match day and it's just there's no previous knowledge required as well and it's, it's really good and that's on the site and that's the interview with the women aiming to teach World Cup tourists Russian and there's some good stuff coming up soon as well on the site that uh, don't really want to have too many spoilers on that though but i know there's a good one coming up on angie's youth team there's some more stuff on the world cup there's a there's a nice little preview for all the world cup kits and which one's the best because i think some of them are really good this year what do we make of russia's kit actually just quickly before we finish just 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 in a couple of words it's not as good as the confederations cup one <laughs> And take a quick thought. That, that's, on the kit. that's a beautiful kit. I've got that one. Oh, lovely. And take a quick thought on the kits. Well, I liked it actually. I thought that uh, for some reason, Russia always, in my opinion, have really good and classic kits. I like how they keep it simple. So, yeah, I'm a fan. 
Yeah, I've got to agree with you, Tyker. I, lo I love the, the simplicity of the kits. They're fantastic. Um, anyway, that <laughs> we could ramble on forever about World Cup and kits and whatever. So we'll have to draw the line there. So thanks again to uh, my two guests there, of course, uh, Toka Thilade and James Nichols. Do follow us on uh, RussianFootballNews.com, of course, at RussFootballNews on Twitter, at RussFootballNews on Instagram, uh, Russian Football News Facebook page. I'm pretty sure there's a there's a World Cup Predictions League as well, which Andrew, Andrew Flint's baby is back alive for the World Cup. It's resurrected after having a uh, uh, being in a coma, I suppose we can say for the off season. This is getting a bit <laughs> this is getting a bit weird, but um, anyway, that'll be back for the World Cup. So Andrew's taking care of that. And again, RussianFootballNews.com. Keep track of all the World Cup preparations. As again, City guys, really fantastic look up if you're heading out there. And of course, do keep listening to this podcast. Recommend it to your friends and everything. And we shall see you on the next one. Идет футбольный матч, летит на поле мяч.